Oh yeah, the Sunday school. I forgot I got introduced to you. <laughs> they are obedient children. <laughs> Thank you for staying. So yeah, the children can go to their Sunday school classes. They're downstairs. That's you. Surreal, you can go to Sunday school class now. You do fun stuff there. You don't want to listen to me talk. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's an upper range limit. All right. So I'm just going to continue on with uh, where Dallas left off last week, where Pastor left off. We're talking about James. We're doing basically marching our way through the book. It's a it's a great book. It's kind of an overarching book. It it hits on a lot of different points. Um, but last week. Dallas left off with, and uh, by the way, we don't have uh, um, uh, PowerPoint. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphone or your tablet or whatever you have that has the Bible on it, I'll speak a little bit slower so you can follow along. I got an amen in the back. She beat you to it. I was just saying that I got at least one amen. He finished with this chapter in James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. How do you keep yourself unspotted from the world? He clearly says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, to visit those who are in need. Those who have, help those who have not. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. So you do those things, but also it includes keeping yourself unspotted from the world. See, an interesting thing that about our movement that we're in right now, the, the reason we are here right now is because it all started, well, church history goes back since Acts and the epistles, but as far as within our last half uh, two centuries it happened because there was a holiness movement there was a group of people that decided that they were going to take the word of God for what it was and they were going to separate themselves and refuse to follow the things that people that were just living will call the world or things that go on that go against the word of God they consecrated themselves to that devotion. It's called the holiness movement. And that is what led into the reinfilling of the Holy Ghost in Topeka, Kansas. When God filled them with the Holy Ghost, they spake with other tongues. And then when it, when it fled over to, to Los Angeles, and from Los Angeles it exploded and went all over the world, and, that's, and we're feeding off of that today. 
That was back in 1900s, back in Los Angeles. And it all started because they, they decided, you know what? We need to be unspotted from this world. And Paul states it very, click, uh, very clearly in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. And I'm going to keep it easy for you today because we're going to stay in the New Testament. So there's no scrolling through the Old Testament. Although now with tablets, it's kind of cheating. You don't have to actually find the books like you used to. Man, those little small prophets, those things were tough to find. Ephesians chapter 5, 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And verse 27 says that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, he being Jesus, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It is in this word. In this word is where life is. In this word lies all the answers. I've said it before, and I'll say it until my dying day, until my last breath, that no matter what your need is, if you will take the time to look into the word of God, you will find the answer that you need. I guarantee it. You will f- if, you, if you are willing to put forth the effort, God will meet you, and He will bring forth what you need from the Word. It lies, in it lies all the answers, and it purges us and keeps us without blemish, as Paul said, that it should be holy and without blemish, washing by the Word. If you go to the Word, there will be scriptures like 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It says, for this is the will of God. If you want to know what the will of God is, this is the will of God. It says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. This is the will of God. And it's not just God's will, but this is also for your, this for my sanctification, for my, for my life to be better. One simple sentence, that ye should abstain from fornication. It also says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, if you're wondering about whether or not God knows who you are, if you're wondering about whether God hears your voice, you can turn to the scripture and you see that he says, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. For whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. Any answer you need in the Word of God, you can find it there. In it we find, most importantly, salvation. Probably the most familiar scripture for most Pentecostals today, Acts 2, 38 and 39, it says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It doesn't stop there. For the promise is unto you, and unto your children, and to all that are afar off, even as many as our Lord our God shall call. Amen. The church said, Amen. So be it, right? Amen. 
I'm thankful that that scripture is in there. I'm thankful for every scripture that's in the word of God. Why? Because it's there for me. It's there to wash me. It's there to help me survive this ugly, ugly world. And I feel like I can say that with confidence today because it is getting uglier and uglier and uglier, unfortunately. I wish that it wasn't. I I wish that I could say. But within it, there's a light, a beacon, a light of hope shining from the Word of God that he put here because he knew. He saw where where this place was going. He knows what's going to happen. But it's up to us to decide whether or not we're going to reach out to that light that he so generously put on earth not only did he do that but he also paid the price amen to answer so that we can answer that call and that so that we could leave this place once and for all so that was chapter 1 verse 27 james then directly goes right in chapter 2 verse 1 he starts talking about Chapter 1 verse 20 chapter 1 is uh, warnings things that can happen what to do what not to do verse 2 is kind of geared more towards the church geared more towards those who have already experienced that wonderful baptism in Jesus name who are quote unquote Christians filled with his spirit He starts to address us. That being said, it's also good life lessons. That's the amazing thing about the Word of God. It's good life lessons. It it forces us to remove... Chapter 2 forces us to remove the goggles of judgment and the actions, and it tells us that actions speak louder than words. You know, the the word of God literally leaves no stone unturned. We have no excuse. I mean, it's a good thing, kind of a scary thing, but it's a good thing because he left it here for us. In chapter 2, verse 1, James writes, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons my brethren have not the faith of our lord jesus christ the lord of glory with respect of persons see it's easy to fall into this trap of respecting persons it's unknowingly ingrained into us as children growing up in a time where people rely so heavily on social status by what's on the outside in other words you can't help but Cast a little bit of judgment on somebody based on what you see when you first see them. It's kind of just it's just, it's just there. You have to like you have to force yourself not to do it. That's that's just part of human nature, I think. And James recognized this, and he he sees that this is a problem. He sees that this is a problem with the church. But see, we have to remember that compared to the Lord of glory, all degrees of rank and position among men are insignificant and contemptible, if you know what that word means. I hope you do, unless you're a kid. 
Everything is compared to the Lord of glory. And everything in comparison to Him, we're all on one equal level playing field. And I'm so thankful that we know who that Lord of glory is. Amen? He walked on this earth, not exactly here. That'd be pretty sweet. But He did walk on this earth. And we're... I feel just I feel insignificant when I think of all the things that God has done all the things that he could do and yet he still gives me the opportunity to have a relationship with him and not only that but to allow to call him by his name Jesus That he's not just some mystical being, some mystical God that I I don't know, I'm not allowed to say, but I can say his name, Jesus, with authority. And he'll come to my rescue. He'll come to my aid. See, many believe that this book was written by James, the brother of Jesus. The brother who lived in the same house as him. Who grew up and was taught the same lessons as him who was now the leader of the first church. I can't help it, but Dallas, uh, pastor always talks about um, the comedian, and, and he always talks about growing up with Jesus as your older brother and what that must have been like. <laughs> always being compared to Jesus. That would just be mind-boggling. <laughs> Anyways, that's neither here nor there. It's okay to smile a little bit. We don't have to sit down all frowny-faced. We've got to listen to him talk. But James experienced Pentecost, believed that Jesus rose, realized who Jesus was, was infilled with the Holy Ghost just like we are today, spoke with other tongues, and he is now the leader of the first church, one of the leaders of the first church. And he's writing this book, and he's talking about the things that mattered that, that mattered to his brother, who was also God. And he felt like when the Spirit moved on him, he realized this was an issue that needed to be dealt with because what it boils down to is it boils down to love. It boils down to the law, something that Jesus spoke about frequently. See, with Jesus, the law, the law being the Ten Commandments and all the other stuff that was in the Old Testament. He summed it up into two commandments. Because in Matthew chapter 22, verse 35, Matthew twenty-two thirty-five, 35, we see this. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Deuteronomy 6.4 He said, this is the first and great commandment. But he didn't stop there. He said, and the second is like unto it. In other words, you've got to love the Lord with everything that you have. But it doesn't stop there. He says, and second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
He whittled down all that they believed down to two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. If you do those two things, you're going to see heaven. Jesus was never a respecter of persons. He didn't care who you are. He healed the sick. He touched those that were unclean. He met with and spoke with the Samaritan, the vile enemies of Israel, of the Jews. He stated that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, or the servant shall be the master and the master shall be the servant. He spent almost all of his ministry teaching and preaching to those who would be considered insignificant. To just the common people. That was his ministry. Jesus was not a respecter of person. And James continues. So we had chapter 2 verse 1 where he starts off. Telling him not to be a respecter of person. It says, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, in a nice suit, and snakeskin boots, and uh, Armani suit, and he rolls in in his, well, I don't know, I mean, his beaver tin, so he rolls in in his Maserati or whatever. says and then there come also come in also a poor man in vile raiment or basically vile raiment just basically means he just had some some nasty clothes and he was poor he came in off the streets probably walked from where he had slept the night before i'm sure if it was during the summer he probably wouldn't smell too pretty didn't look too pretty He says in verse 3, And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there. Man, smelling up the place. It's in the back. See that little library back there? There's some comfortable couches back there. You'll be able to hear the sermon back there. We don't want you to be up here. But oh, please, Mr. Richman with the deep pocketbook, come sit up here. This is the mindset of the church. This is what was happening to the church after Jesus left. It says, And say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. And verse 4 says, Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? In other words, they became judges that, can't, that couldn't be trusted. They were, they were immediately casting judgment upon those who were coming in, whether or not they were worthy of their close seats, their easy access to worship, special treatment. It was never and will never be our right to judge others. Amen? All we can do is speak behind the authority of the Word of God. And we treat every single person that we see just as God would. And how is that? That's a little, that is, that is a soul that He created and He brought forth into this world. That's going to spend eternity somewhere. When I think about that, it hits me hard because I think about my two boys. 
And I think that, you know, they're going to spend eternity somewhere, and it's up to me to guide them and to lead them in not only the best life that they can have, which is the life that I believe is in Christ, but not only this life, because I see another life, a more important life than this one. Yes, I want them to be successful. Yes, I want them to be happy. Yes, I want them to be healthy. And I want them to, to experience the, the good things that, that God created us to experience here. But more importantly than that, I want him to have a relationship with the one true God, Jesus Christ. That, that is the most important thing in my life. First, your family. And everything else. If your family's right, you know, that's. When I was at ABI, we were being taught, we, we were teaching one of these, we were getting in one of the classes, and, and the pastor said that the very first thing in a minister's, the, the most important part of a minister's ministry is to his family. His family, his God, and his church, and the church. God, family, church. We are the body. Amen? We are the body. But family, there's a great responsibility on each and every one of us as parents to teach our kids especially now more than ever. In the world that we live in where it is so easy to just push one little button and they're whisked away into never-never land of just atrocities and nastiness and whatever. It's so easy. They have to have a firm foundation so that when they go out on their own, I don't have to worry because I know that they have an altar that they can come to. That they have a church family that they can rely on. That's what this is about. Us as a church family. Not shunning those who we would think are not as deserving as others. It was, it was so important he spent half a chapter on it. Because we as Holy Ghost filled Christians if anybody should not be looking through the eyes of judgment it, it should be us people need to feel safe when they come to church and I think that's part of the problem that there's an issue that people have with church because they feel like as soon as they walk in all we're doing is we're looking at them we're just like yeah okay you know they don't, people don't want that. They don't, they don't need that. They get enough judgment. They get enough of that outside of these walls. These walls have to be sacred and safe where you can, where you can feel the love that God loves. If Jesus Christ was in here and people were coming, would they feel judged by him? No. They would feel the love that he spread abroad to all of them. That's the love that should be in us. Amen? Verse 5, it says, Hearken, my beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith, 
and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. In other words, just because we see somebody who looks kind of nasty and looks kind of wrong doesn't mean you got to look through through Jesus' eyes. See how God sees them. Okay? And we're just being practical today. So, you know, if uh, you know, if you have any questions afterwards, you know, let me know. But not every service has to be how can I put it? wild and crazy which that really doesn't happen too much here as far as you know I mean I've seen some pretty crazy stuff down in LA when I was there but that, you know that's that's what I love about the family of God though it's like everyone can worship in their own way because it's between you and God we, we're going to help lead the church into a spirit of worship with songs but our job isn't to cheerlead and the whoever's leading worship's job isn't to 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 cheerlead and to try to get you no it's just to create an atmosphere of praise where when i'm sitting out there i can feel comfortable enough to close my eyes and just worship in whatever way god has whatever way i feel impressed to do that when i that's why when I'm worshiping, and I did this when I was in L.A., I just, I closed my eyes, and I didn't open them until the worship service was over with. Unless I felt like running, of course, then I'd open my eyes for the sake of everybody else and my shins on the pews and not be a distraction by just toppling over some little kid that's running the aisles too. But I would just close my eyes. Why? Because it's easy to kind of get distracted by what someone's not doing next to you. Even though they may be doing what they feel like doing, it, it, it can make me feel kind of awkward if I didn't. But when I close my eyes and I just focus on God and I just wanted to express to Him whatever, however I wanted to express it, I mean, people worship in all kinds of ways. You go to a wrong concert, you'll see everything. You go to a, a, Blaz- a Blazers game, you see all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, thankfully there aren't people in here, you know, lining up, painting J-E-S-U-S on each other's chest and, you know, I'm just kidding. You know, I'm glad you don't get no ideas. But people do crazy things and it's okay to worship Him however you want to worship Him. That's the kind of freedom that we need to have in this place. That's, we sing a song called Freedom. I mean, that's like half the song. You're just saying freedom over and over again. I hope we're not just saying these things and not actually meaning these things. Okay, so that's what I would tell the youth in in, in L.A. If you're feeling like peer pressure, because peer pressure plays a huge role with young people, obviously. But if you're feeling peer pressure because people next to you aren't, just close your eyes, sing the song, and forget about who's next to you. And an amazing thing will happen. You'll, You'll... You'll just realize, all right, when it all boils down to it, it is about me and God. So what do I want to do to show my love to Him? What do I want to do to show my, my, my appreciation for who He is? And when I feel His Spirit come over me, when I feel those tingles come down my neck, and when I feel that, that, that joy starting to well up, what am I going to do? I don't want to bottle that in and just 
and not be able to express that how I want to express that. You know, that's why we're called holy rollers. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. People may think that is, but I don't think that's a bad thing. But he says that the poor God sees them as rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. God specializes. He specializes not calling the qualified, but he qualifies those who he calls. Amen. The Bible says that none should perish. It also says that we are the salt and light of the world. It says we. We who are a part of this family. We are the light of this world. There are a lot of hurting people out there and who... It's up to us. God gave us that responsibility to be a light to those who are around us. Amen? We are heirs to the kingdom, and it is up to us to be rich in faith and spread the message of love and restoration because that's what he's all about. Love God. Love your neighbor. Two commonalities in those statements. Love and love. If you ain't got love... You ain't got God. Amen? You can tell me whatever you want to tell me. You can act how you ever want to act. You can dress how you ever want to dress. But if you ain't got love, I'm sorry, friend. You need to spend some time at the altar. Because God needs to do something. And in the next verse, he says, But ye have despised the poor. He calls them out. You've despised the poor. And he goes into the rich men and says, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? See, in the day of James, and for most part in today's world, it's not as bad now, but back then, those who were quite well off or rich were, are opposed to God and His cause. They just don't have any need for Him. They feel like they have everything. They're comfortable. You know, nowadays that's considered kind of middle class. We, we don't, I mean, that's America in general, basically. There are those who, you know, not, not all, but middle class is growing for the most part. But those who were rich back then, they, they opposed to God and His cause. However, in the latter time, basically back then when James was writing, the rich notoriously would be cruel to Christians oppressing them, dragging them to judgment seats, blaspheming the name of their Lord. This is what they would, the, typically the rich people would do this. Yes, some will come to the church, but he's reminding them that the majority of rich people, unfortunately, were not that nice to Christians because they didn't want to be affiliated with, well, first of all, not, not only that, but this is primarily to the Jews, and the Jews at that time, we're not big fans of Christians. <laughs> they didn't like associating Jesus with God. They just weren't fans of that, and they were trying to stop it, And <clears throat> along with the Romans. But Jesus spoke directly to these types of situations. Anytime that we are mistreated, once again, it all comes back to the Word. It's recorded in God's Word. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Old Testament. Verse 44 says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 45, That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? Anybody can do that. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Lastly, he says, but be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. It's a tall order. But he's saying, it's easy to love those who love you. It takes God's love to love those who are mean to you, who bully you, who do evil things to you. The Bible says to pray for them. Jesus said to pray for them. That's really... I have not had to face this type of situation. I'm, I'm just going to be transparent. I haven't had to face this type of situation in my life, necessarily, where a great atrocity has been done to me or someone in my family. Someone got murdered. Just something that, just a heinous event. And I just believe that if that was going to happen, that I'll find it on the altar and God will help me get through that. Because I think in that type of situation, God gives you a little extra love to share, to help heal that, that wound that's there. But we all come across people that we don't like. We all come across people that, that aren't going to like you. No matter what you do, they're just not going to like you. And someone may not like me just because I wear glasses and I ain't got no hair. I tell you what, there ain't nothing I can do about that. I can't wear contacts and I ain't buying a wig. And I surely ain't using Rogaine, so you deal, deal with it. But the Bible says to pray for them. Love them. You can kill with love. The Bible says it's like heaping hot coals on the head of your enemy by praying for them, loving them. That is, that's the reaction that they don't want. They, they'd rather have you fight back and do that. Say, I'm going to love you. Jesus, Jesus wouldn't say this if he didn't show it, right? He proved that this is doable. And he, did the, he went above and beyond what any of us, Lord willing, will ever have to face. And on his deathbed, forgiving them. So when we get back to James chapter 2, we see in verse 8, If ye fulfill the royal law, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. 
Clark commentary has this to say, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself is a royal law not only because it is ordained of God and proceeds from his kingly authority over men, but because it is so useful, suitable, and necessary to the present state of man. And as it was given us particularly by Christ himself, he quotes a couple of scriptures. John chapter 13, it says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, and ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Nothing tears the church apart more than the saints fighting against saints. Brother and sister having a problem with a brother and sister. The Bible talks about it in great detail as far as how to resolve those kinds of issues. Because those can be the death knell on the coffin of a church. And you have nasty splits that happen just because something crept in and people allowed bitterness to creep in. And there was, they lost that love and respect for one for another. And it also says in John 15 that this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. He continues to go on and say, um, Christ himself, who is our king, as well as prophet and priest, that it should ever put us in mind of his authority over us and our subjection to him. He has ultimate authority over us. That's why it's the royal law. And our subjection to him as the regal state is the most excellent for secure secular dignity and civil utility that exists among men. Hence we give the epithet royal to whatever is excellent. In other words, we, we put royal in front of whatever is excellent, whatever is noble, grand, or useful. It gets royal. And he says that royal law, the, one of the greatest laws, love thy neighbor as thyself. And in verse 9, he then continues to go on. He says, but if ye have, this is James chapter 2, verse 9, he continues to go on. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So now he's just saying, look, if you're going to judge these people, I'm just going to tell you right now, you're sinning. You have committed a sin. And James chapter, he continues on in verse 10, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Verse 11 says, For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, this is verse 11, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you can, you can do everything right. It's kind of like I said, you can do everything right, but you don't show respect to every person. In other words, you don't show that love. You don't love your neighbor. You can live the most righteous life you want to live. But you commit one sin, you break one part of the law, You've broken the whole law. If you speed for one minute out of the trip that you're driving and the cop catches you while you speed, it doesn't matter if you were driving the speed limit for the first 30 minutes of your drive. If I'm in a hurry to get to church and I rip down uh, Murray, 
But Shoals Ferry, I was just cruising along nice, and I realized what time it is, and I come squealing my tires around Murray, and I take off, and I get a ticket. I get a ticket for that speeding ticket, for, for what I was doing right there. The cop doesn't care what I was driving back before. I'm speeding. I'm breaking the law. Therefore, I'm going to get a ticket. Now, the good thing that we have is that Jesus Christ paid the ticket, so to speak. In other words, we were in court. Jesus Christ is the judge. He finds us guilty. He then steps down from his judge, his where he sits, comes down, takes off his robe, puts the payment at the judgment seat, and looks back and says, You're free to go. When you call on him, when we call on him, that's what he's done for us. He's done the hard part. Now he's set it up. He's gave us, he's given us very descriptive, very distinct details on what to do, on how to make this life the best life. And if we mess up, Paul said, and I know you know what I'm going to say, he said, I die daily. Paul did this. Writer of the majority of the New Testament felt the need to say that. Why? Because he realized that just walking in this world, just walking out there, you kind of pick stuff up. And sometimes you just need to take a shower. You just get home, you read, open your word, you come to church, maybe you need something that you got to repent about. And God's right there. And he says, oh, I'm so glad you did that. You're forgiven. Tossed into the sea of forgetfulness. It's as if it never happened. You literally walk away a new creature, a new person. I don't like using that word creature. You walk away a new human being. You're no longer the old person that you were when you laid your sins on the altar. And we have to give everybody that opportunity. I do not want to be the barrier. We do not want to be the barrier between that door and this altar. It is up to us to be the light. It's up to us to draw them here, to be the light to them out there. Home Bible studies. How are they going to see Jesus? They're going to see him through you. And I don't want to be that barrier. James is warning them about this because this is, the, this is what they were falling into. They were seeing dollar signs. They were seeing, they were seeing their own judging that what was comfortable to them. That's what they were seeing. And he felt the need to spend 13 verses on this subject. And in verse 12 he says, So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Verse 13 says, For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. It says this, And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. In other words, there's judgment. It's going to be there. We're going to face the judgment seat. The right kind of judgment. The godly judgment. And the mercy, the mercy seat 
the blood that was shed for us, that rejoices. The mercy rejoiceth against judgment. His blood was shed for us so that that judgment seat doesn't have to be a sign of, of terror and something that we have to be afraid of. We can rejoice when we know that that's coming because that just means we're getting ushered in to our new home, to not the apartment building that I'm living in or the house that I'm trying to buy. It's a home that's being built right now for me with my name on it, and it's waiting there for me. And I don't got to make a down payment. I don't got to make a mortgage. I don't got to pay insurance on it. I don't got to get earthquake insurance on it. And all that's what I'm learning about. It's there waiting for us. And you can stand. I'm going to close with these last three verses. Paul's writing to the Roman church. He says, Romans, in this chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. It says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And in verse 10 it says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The title was going to be No Respecter. We should not be casting that kind of judgment on people who they don't have to come through this door when we're just out and about. I went for a run after work along uh, Waterfront Road. And it was, it was tough. It was, it, it's hard. I don't know if you've walked that path. It's kind of scary, first of all. I'm not going to lie. But it's, it's sad. My heart was hurting because... There, I mean, it basically is just lined up with homeless people. People who have no home, no place to call their home. And later on, and I'm sure Dallas will get to it, James then directly goes into works and proving your faith by your works. He starts it off with talking about love, talking about not judging someone who's coming through those doors, not judging someone who you see out on the street who may be less than you, who you may be kind of leery. To remove those and look and see them how Jesus sees them. And then he goes directly in to doing the work of the faith that you have. Remember in verse 27 it said, Visit the fatherless. Visit the widows. Loving those who have less than you have. Being just good people, if anything. 
And I know I'm, me personally, and my family, that's one thing I'm going to start doing. Start put some action and money where my mouth is kind of thing. Making packs for the homeless, making packs, going out. Because they need Jesus too. All of us need Jesus, but if we just go and say, in fact, he talks about it a little bit later. You see someone who's poor and needy and hungry, and I think we have a bad habit of saying, bless you, brother. Be fed by the Spirit. Read the Word, which they need to. But if their stomach, you know, if they have these basic needs that aren't being met, there's no way they're going to they're gonna receive anything. But if you come to them and you say, here, this is for you. This isn't money. I have some essential things that I, I know you might need. By the way, is there something that I can pray with you about? Because we do serve a God who answers prayers. Amen? He may not give them the, the, exactly what they are needing at that moment as far as, as far as what they think they might need. It, like, but He'll meet a need, a healing Maybe a little bit of peace in a situation that is that has been bothering them in their life. We don't know, and that's not the point. The point is, is that you're there for them, and you're you're calling on a God who wants to answer them, and you're maybe opening their eyes to the fact that, okay, someone correlating these gifts with the love of Christ. Maybe church isn't so bad, and who knows. Maybe they won't think anything about it. But it helps me. It helps my son. It helps the church. It helps whoever does that. It's the love of God spread abroad. That is what we're here for. We don't have to come to the altar. Just close your eyes wherever you are.